So if God is who he says he is and the Bible is what God says it is, then he wants to talk to us whenever we open it. So I'm gonna give you a chance right now. Just take a minute and be quiet before God. And I want you to invite God to connect with you, to encourage you, challenge you, to teach you, to guide you, to show you what's next. Just take a minute in your own heart and pray and ask God to meet you now as we open his word. God, we were available here. That's what our songs have been communicating to you, our prayers. And so each of us, individually and as a church, we anticipate what you do, what your Holy Spirit does in and through us and among us when we open your word. So pray that every one of us will walk out of here today changed because we've had a, an encounter with you through, through the truth of your word. Amen. So at our house this weekend, we've had a couple of out-of-town guests Thursday through this morning, which has been kind of fun. A lot of good meals when out-of-town guests come. Food draws us together. But it's also kind of interesting when you have guests come from out of town, stay in your house for a weekend, you realize what people like and people don't like. You know, I use that kind of milk. It's not almond milk. I need oat milk, right? I don't use that kind of sugar in my coffee. I have this or tea or I don't eat seafood. All those things that are like differences and preferences. Because food draws us together, but food can kind of pull us apart as well. And we didn't experience it this weekend, but I hear stories, and we have in the past, and some of you might, where maybe it, maybe it gets a little bit more morally superior, you know, that you know, we actually eat meat here, and we don't, we're not vegetarians, or we don't eat meat, so we're a little bit higher up on the standard there. And then you listen to nutritionists, and one nutritional expert might describe this certain food as like being the answer to everything. It's like the fountain of youth, and you read another nutritional expert who says that very same food will kill you. Don't eat it. Don't touch it. And we wonder, what is food all about? And then when you get into church life or religious life, it's interesting that, doc, that dietary restrictions and the role food has and what food and drink are acceptable or not acceptable throughout religious circles throughout history have been really, really interesting. Most Buddhists, for example, are lacto-vegetarians. They include milk and dairy, but no meat. Islamic law forbids eating pork. Uh, Jainism prohibits eggs, meat, and fish. Mormons don't drink coffee, tea, alcohol. They don't use tobacco. And then under the umbrella of Christendom, under the umbrella of Christendom, we have some rules and dietary restrictions. Some of them are traditions that we participate in. Right now, we're on one. Our, our Catholic friends during Lent uh, give all of us an opportunity for good fish every Friday, right? Because we, we go to the best place to get fish because they don't eat meat during Lent, so they, they have fish. Or our Seventh-day Adventist brothers and sisters, uh, they, they avoid caffeine, they avoid uh, alcohol, they avoid those kinds of things. So anyway, it's interesting what food does for us. And the reason I want to share that is because sometimes those who, even among evangelicals, it's like we don't drink this, we don't eat this. There can be a sense of, I actually am better than you because of this. There's, there's like a moral or ethical superiority. And we're going to encounter that in the text we're in Acts chapter 10 today. So if you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, we're going to, this, this section focuses on religious rules surrounding food 
but, but more than that, how these religious rules surrounding food help us to know how God loves all people. So let's begin reading verse one of Acts chapter 10. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel from God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? And the angel answered, or he asked the angel, and the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. So it'll help to get our bearings a little bit where we're at in the book of Acts. In the last chapter, when Adam spoke last week, this week, next week, we have a prayer emphasis, and then the following week. So I pulled a map up that will help you to see Peter's journey, kind of his ministry trip that we're on. Last week, went from Jerusalem to Lydda, ended in Joppa at the end of chapter 9. Now, Caesarea, where Cornelius is, is north. It's about 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was an ancient city. It had been transformed from a town called Stratos Tower. Herod transformed it, put the the biggest and the first kind of artificial harbor was constructed there, an amphitheater dedicated to Caesar. It's important to know that the Gentiles in Caesarea outnumbered the Jewish population, so there was some ethnic tension in Caesarea between the Jews and the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were the majority there. You can also see further down where Joppa, Joppa where Peter, we left him last week, and that's where he's going to enter into this story again. Um, he, by the way, Peter was staying with Simon the Tanner, and that means Simon who was by trade a tanner of hides, and we see right there what's happening in the church. From Jerusalem, the birth of the church keeps pushing out. The, the mission of the church keeps pushing out to people who otherwise we may not think belong. So it was the Greek-speaking uh, people in Jerusalem, then the Samaria with Philip's ministry, and then Peter. Now he's, he's staying in Joppa with a Jewish man, but a Jewish man who is a tanner. And by definition, if you're a tanner, you're dealing with blood and animals all the time, which what does that mean from a Jewish standpoint? That means this guy was completely all the time ceremonially unclean. So God keeps pushing his people further out from what they thought ought to be the, the place of holiness, which is following the Jewish rituals and being Jewish. To Okay, now he's continuing to send them out. So right away in verse one, we're introduced to Cornelius. He's a, an officer in the Roman army, commands the Italian regiment, a centurion, so 100 soldiers or so under his sway. We're not told a lot about his background. We don't know much about where he came from or what led him to this pursuit. But what we find out is he was very devout. He had embraced somewhere along the line the God of the Jewish faith, and so much so that all of his household also embraced the Jewish faith, the Jewish God. Now, we, it doesn't say for sure if he actually had made that step to become a Jewish proselyte, that he had actually converted, but he was embracing the God of the Jews. And in fact, he prayed, he gave alms. The only other of the three pillars in the Jewish religion is fasting that's not mentioned here. 
And so it doesn't seem like it was just a crisis in his life and he's crying out to God. It's like, here's a man who was far from God outside of the Jewish faith, not a Jew, a Gentile, who was seeking God as he knew he ought to seek God through prayer, through giving to the poor. One of the biggest lessons of Cornelius' experience for us among many is that when, when someone who's far from God seeks God and acts upon whatever light they have and follows whatever light they have, God is faithful to provide more light to continue on the journey. And sometimes we think of people that that magic moment going from not being a Christian to a Christian, when oftentimes it's people who are seeking God, people who are asking questions, people who are wrestling with the meaning of life, and they, they grab onto this thing because they see it, and they carry that, and then God gives them more light, which we'll talk to in a little bit, because talk about in a little bit, because God actually wants to use us to answer that next step. Verses three and four, God answers Cornelius' prayers, through a vision, and throughout the book of Acts, we've seen God use visions to communicate, to direct, oftentimes a prayer, or where God still today drives us and moves us. Sometimes we think it's in our committee meetings or in our you know, strong Bible studies, but it's when, it's when we humble our hearts before God in prayer, corporately and individually, that we put ourselves in the right position for God to, to direct us. Uh, a tangential question here, by the way, that comes up is whether God hears and responds to the prayers of those who don't know Jesus as their savior. And there are some in the church, some leaders in the church, some uh, scholars and prominent voices who say the only prayer that God hears from non-believers is the plea for salvation. Other than that, God hears nothing. God will not entertain the prayer from anyone other than a prayer that I need to be saved. <clears throat> and I look at the scripture verses that are used to support that position, and there are some who, some verses in scripture that seem to indicate that. As I look at them, it seems like they're more proof texts that are answering the wrong question. In our, in our way of thinking in evangelical Christianity, where we kind of have to have everything in a linear path, someone goes, as I mentioned a little bit ago, from darkness to light. I was not a Christian, now I am. And that point in time is really important. And so that point in time is what we look at and say, okay, I'm a, I was a, not a Christian before that, and I am a Christian now, which means we have to have really a lot of certainty of what's happening in someone's heart. And I don't know about you, but I know some people <clears throat> that prayed that prayer, but I, watching them and knowing them, I don't know that the transformation actually happened until a little bit later. And I know people that prayed that prayer, and I'm like, I've seen God working in you for weeks. You just didn't know it, and now you're just like embracing what God's already doing. So, so we, we need to think more of this process, and someone said, you know what? I prayed this prayer then, but God has been drawing me to himself, and somewhere along that journey, he transformed me, and he rescued me, and he's given me that Holy Spirit to live in me. Um, the challenge is when we limit our view of how God interacts with us and how God sanctifies us. The narrative in Acts shows over and over again that God is a God who's preparing the hearts of people far from him and using people who are in his family to draw together so that this can be done. Maybe the prayer for salvation, to say it another way, maybe the prayer of salvation is not a point in time prayer all the time as much as it's a heart yearning that might be over a period of months or weeks or years 
that God is answering of people who are far from him. John 9.31 is often cited to support that God does not hear the prayers of non-Christian people. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he's ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Now, if the question is binary, does God hear the prayer of a non-Christian or not? Then it's a yes or no answer. But I think that's, I think there's a better question. What if the question is, what kind of prayer does God hear and respond to? What, what prayer does God hear and respond to? And from this verse, it seems that God hears and responds to prayers of those who worship him and do his will. Regardless of where you are on that continuum of you know, follower of Christ, a seeker, God answers prayers when we seek him, when we do his will. So for someone who's not a Christian, to sincerely seek to live and know God and even to pray to God, to sincerely reach out to him, I believe and I'm convicted that God hears those prayers. God interacts with those prayers. And, and from the text we see here, God actually sometimes answers those prayers directly. In Cornelius' vision, it was answered through an angel. Uh, he had this vision of an angel who came to him it's interesting, he, he responded with terror. It's interesting how frequently in the Bible when angels show up, people are afraid. We like to think this is gonna be a warm, lovely uh, experience having an angel come to me, but usually they're really scary when they show up. And so the angel shows up, he's terrified. Um, God has received Cornelius' prayers and the angel says, they mattered. The prayers and the giving of someone far from God mattered to God. And the angel said they mattered. And so God is here to help you to take, take that next step. So we don't know the specific content of the prayer that Cornelius was asking, but from the answer that he got, it must have been something about a plea to belong to God's family. So I can only imagine that Cornelius was following the light he had, was praying, was giving, but there was something that was yet still not real, still not full, and maybe he was praying that he would belong to the people of God like, like the Jewish people did, or something. And, and God came and said, hey, I've got a pathway for that. And I wanna say really clear, there might be someone in this room right now or someone watching online who's like Cornelius, who desires to know more about God. You don't know him. You look at the church, you look at the people who call themselves Christians and you're intrigued, you're, you're wondering. You may, even, you may even be praying regularly and, and doing things that people who know God do and you're, you're on the way, you're... you're seeking. One of, the, one of the ways that we in the church usually answer that question when we encounter someone like you is you need to believe, put your faith in Jesus, ask for forgiveness, and trust him to be your savior, which is not wrong. It's not wrong. But I think it's equally biblical to respond to those of you who are seeking, those of you who are looking, those of you who are hanging on to what you know and wanting to know more, and you're, you're trying to embrace of God what you know. I think it's equally biblical and wise for us to encourage you to obey what you know about God. And obey and follow what you know and trust and seek for God to show you more. 
There'll be a spiritual component of that journey. Now, we actually have something today that the Cornelius didn't have, which is the Bible. So you could also join a small group here, join a Bible study. You could also join our Bible reading plan at efree.org slash back together, where we're going through the New Testament together as a church. You can interact with God's word. But, but my point is, obey and follow what you have because we're confident here that God, if he has you on that journey, is gonna carry it through. Then the question will become, how does he do that? And that's where we move next. The instructions were sent to a team, uh, or Cornelius sent the team on this 30-mile journey to Joppa to fetch Peter, and Cornelius sent them off. And now I wanna read Acts chapter 10, verses nine through 23. This is a long section but hang with me as we go through because it's really pivotal and so exciting and challenging what God does here. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw a sky open and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, birds. And the voice said, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice spoke again, saying, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times and the sheet was suddenly pulled up into heaven. Peter was perplexed. What could this vision mean? Just then the men from Cornelius found Simon's house standing outside the gate. They asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, Peter was puzzling over this vision the Holy, that the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Go downstairs and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I've sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come for me? And they said, we're sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He's devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to the house so he can hear your message. So Peter invited them in to stay the night and he went with them the next day to Joppa or from Joppa to Caesarea. So like many passages in the Bible, there are kind of two layers of meaning and application for this from this text. Peter was in Joppa. Uh, Joppa, by the way, was whereas Caesarea was a majority Gentile population with a minority Jewish population. Joppa was just the opposite. Joppa was majority Jewish population with a minority Gentile population. So he stayed with Simon, the tanner. I've already mentioned him. And this section of Acts, God just keeps moving this further out. So with no knowledge, this is one of the most fascinating things in this chapter. Peter's praying with no knowledge of anything that was going on out there, that there was a team coming to see him. Peter goes to the roof to pray, which was something Jews did three times a day. And it's Reasonable to think that Peter carried that on uh, after, after uh, coming to Christ and, and the birth of the church. So he's praying on the roof. Um, and we see another principle that God sees. When God works here, he's also working over here. And the prayers of Cornelius were, were kind of connecting now with this prayer time that Peter had. All so that God could do his ultimate purpose. It's just amazing. The prayer encounter now is linked between Caesarea and Joppa, waiting for the food to be prepared. He drifted into this vision. This sheet was lowered down, and it was all these animals that were, many of them unclean, according to the Jewish dietary laws. Kind of takes us back to Genesis 6 in the description when in the 
Noah's getting ready, collecting animals to go on the ark. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, male and female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of small animal that scurries on the ground will come to you. And in his vision, Peter is commanded to kill these animals and eat them. And Peter said, no, Lord. That's how committed Peter was to the Jewish dietary restrictions. It's how committed Peter was to follow the law of the Old Testament. These laws were given by God and Peter would, he felt like he would be violating those laws. If you look in Leviticus chapter 11, the dietary laws in the Old Testament were so specific and were so precise and were designed to keep God's people pure and clean in that Old Testament ceremonial system. Then the voice of the vision in verse 15 that canceled these Jewish restrictions, Jewish dietary restrictions, said, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Don't call something unclean if God has made it clean. Later in the New Testament and in early Christian doctrine, we know it and it's very commonly taught that it was the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that did this. It was the work of Christ that abolished all of the Old Testament restrictions of dietary law. No longer do we have to follow a set of dietary codes to be acceptable to God. Now through Christ and through Christ alone, we have, we have that acceptance to God. And we, we could even go so far as to go to the, to the Last Supper where Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. You wanna be clean? This is what makes you clean. And Jesus in, his, in the Gospels talks about it's not what comes inside, in from the outside that makes us clean or unclean. It's what's inside. It's natural and immediate then that if the point that, G, that, God, that God is making to Peter is those Old Testament laws are no longer applicable, those Old Testament dietary laws, including Gentile food. Gentile food is no longer unclean. It's a very short step to understand if Gentile food is not unclean, perhaps Gentiles are not unclean. If Gentile food is not off limits, maybe, maybe Gentiles are not off limits. And just as in the case of Cornelius' vision, Peter's vision left him a little bit wondering. He pondered the meaning of this, what's gonna happen. And, and then two things happen simultaneously. So he's praying, seeing these visions, hearing this real mind-blowing thing that now food's, no food is unclean. And then there's a knock on the door and these guys are standing there saying this, that Cornelius sent us down to get Peter. And the Holy Spirit then says to Peter, go down and go with these people. And as Peter was pondering that, uh, Peter went down and welcomed these men. And again, it's an incredible illustration of God working and giving more light to people who are seeking more light. But the way he does that is by people like Peter, people like you, people like me being available. Peter went down and welcomed them. It's also worth noting that Peter, he didn't like have to put it on his calendar for later. He immediately went down and left. And sometimes in the way we live, traveling at Mach 3 and all the kids' activities and work and responsibilities and hobbies and binge watching our TV series and all the things we do, that if God, if God were to tap many of us on the shoulder and say, hey, I've got a special assignment for you today. We'd, Can we look at next Tuesday? Because I'm really packed right now. I mean, the question is, are we available? E even church life, are we available? Sometimes, and this is a malady for evangelical churches like ours, 
most of us, when we look at a church and say, is that a really healthy, vibrant church? What do we think about how busy it is, right? Does it have kids programs and youth programs and women's and men's? Does it have activities and groups and work, all, all these things, which are not bad, but then we start measuring that and maybe the measure of God is, boy, are, are those people available to me? Are those people available? Even the back together um, emphasis that we're doing right now at our church, which is so, so needed, and we, we've spelled that out so well, coming together for fellowship, for Bible reading, for prayer, um, building the community here, that's not for us, right? If the back together emphasis is just for us to be closer and more warm, then we're missing it. We're saying we need to be back together. We need to be together as a church following after God so that we can be the salt and light that we're supposed to be in our neighborhoods and in our churches so that we can reach out to people that are far from God. See, God is ascending God and he's sending all of us, sending us to the people who are seeking in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, at our health club, at our schools, wherever we are. Some, some of us, God's, God's actually tapping you on the shoulder and sending you somewhere far away that might include a move, might include leaving your home in West County and moving to another part of St. Louis so you could be salt and light there and part of our ministry there. Maybe God wants to take you across the country, across the world, to another mission field where you can be salt and light. We, we believe God does that and we celebrate that. In fact, we're gonna have a lunch today if you wanna join us where a couple of our missionaries, local missionaries in, in the Evangelical Free Church in Missouri are helping us and we're partnering with them to take the gospel and to go to where people are seeking uh, Peter and Cornelius' messenger stayed there that night and then they left for Caesarea. Let's pick up the story in verse 24. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I'm just a human like you. So they together, they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. Peter told them, you know, it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent. Now tell me why you sent me. Cornelius replied, four days ago, I was praying in the house about this time three o'clock in the afternoon, suddenly a man dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send the messengers to Joppa, summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message that the Lord has given to you. <clears throat> so someone must have sent word ahead that Peter and the, the team was on the way. Uh, <clears throat> we don't know exactly how that was taking place, but perhaps news spread about the movement and Simon or Cornelius knew something about what this message was, but now they're really excited because one of the apostles is actually coming to share this message. So Cornelius did what people do when they're hungry for the Lord. He invited all of his relatives and close friends to come and join him to be here because we're gonna learn something about being close to God. And I don't know about you, I, I was saved as a little bitty boy, been a Christian all my life, and sometimes I lose this wonder, I lose this excitement. 
about, come on. We need, God wants to help us to know how we can be in his family. Friends, family, come, we've got something really, really important to hear. So after an awkward introduction, Cornelius falling down, kind of worshiping Peter and Peter saying, get up, I'm just a man. It says they went inside together, two men, <clears throat> one an apostle and one a spiritual seeker. Think of that. An apostle who walked with Jesus and a Gentile guy who's just been following the light he had, praying and giving and trying to know God. A Jew and a Gentile, unthinkable. A military officer and a civilian, equally together they entered this room. And the divide between Jews and Gentiles, it's hard to overstate how that was. It's hard to overstate the, the hatred and the animosity and the vile and the contempt held between these two groups. No Orthodox view would ever think of entering the home of a Gentile. The law Peter, Peter recites here is not the, the biblical law, but the Jewish religious law that would, would prohibit you as a Jew from associating or entering the home of a non-Jew. They were dogged. Why would you do that? That would, be, that would be filthy. That would be corrupting for you. We should note that those man-made laws were not consistent with even what God was doing in the Old Testament. You go back to Genesis 12, the whole part about electing, about starting this Old Testament people Israel through Abraham, it wasn't just for them. It was why? So that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So that God would be known among all people. But one commentator said it well when he said, Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. Twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. And we do that today too, don't we? It's not just God chose us and selected us. God likes us more. God favors us. We're better than. And that's what happened in Israel. And if we're not careful, that's what happens in our lives as Christians, isn't it? The doctrine of election gets twisted into a doctrine of favoritism. Peter's first words demonstrate he must have been formulating in his mind what to say about this vision of animals. They've probably been thinking about this all along. And it's interesting that he knew a little bit of why he was going, but how, how cool is it that Peter was obedient to go without knowing exactly the whole story? And for many of us, it's like, all right, God, you want me to go? Let me get this all spelled out. Peter's like, I'm gonna just go and I'm gonna trust that when I get there, I will know and God will help me to know what I need to do and say and why I've been sent. It was clear now that this vision that Peter had about the animals was applicable to people. He said, God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. I should no longer think of anyone, any image bearer of God. You go back to Genesis, every person is made in the image of God. I no longer should think of any image bearer of God, of any person as unclean. When we view another human being as unclean, as common, as less than, then we set them outside the reach of God's redemptive love. We fail to recognize their image bearing. We fail to recognize that God, God has in his heart to love them 
to save them, to share with them, to invite them into the family. Like the Jews of Peter Day, we can see our belonging into God's family as favoritism. But going a step further, like Peter in this and other passages, not just, and we wouldn't say this consciously, but it's not just that they're outside, but their existence kind of gets in my way too. It, it kind of gets in my way and I'm not as holy because they exist, because that post on Facebook or social media or because that news story that shows about what they're, what they're wanting. And, and, uh, that, that somehow it's not just that they're outside, but, but I'm having a hard time being holy because they are there. And I'm confessing what my heart can do, which is so, so contrary to what this passage and what God's love calls us to. So the big question, there's nowhere to hide in this chapter, by the way. There's nowhere to hide. The big question, who is it that you, who is it that I tend to view as unclean or common? Who is it? And, and, And we probably would never say it that way. But who gets the scorn around the dinner table when we're just doing bantering? Who do we criticize? Who do we speak of as though they're not worthy of God's love? Who is it? People of a certain race, people of a certain sexual orientation, maybe an extreme political position, be it liberal or conservative, people who are incarcerated, Muslims, Hindus, people of other religions, the illiterate, the uneducated, people that have different views than us on abortion or death penalty or trans rights or global warming or any other issue out there, evolution, people who are rich, poor, addicts, that person who cut you off in traffic last Thursday and ruined your afternoon. Who is it that we put outside? Who is it that we even for a moment in our hearts, think, yeah, I'm, I'm better than. People who are dirty, homeless. What if someone from one of those groups was praying and is praying today and trying to grasp the light that they have of God and, and yearning for more? And they're yearning for more. And what if God taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I want you to go. I want you to be among them. I want you to take my love to them. That's the big challenge in this chapter. There are no religious, ethnic, cultural, behavioral, economic, any other conditions that need to be met for someone to be worthy of the gospel. Jesus taught us this too when he called Levi. And if there's ever a category that's kind of universally rejected, it's tax collectors, right? I mean, there's any time or epoch or place, the people that take your money for taxes. And he called Levi and the religious leaders were criticizing him for calling a tax collector to be one of his followers. And in Luke chapter five, verse 31, Jesus said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people need a doctor. That's really what this is all about. So we should today and every day regularly examine our hearts, examine our attitudes, examine our ministries, examine our focus, and assess who we treat as common, who we view as outside, 
of the sphere of the gospel. Most of us would not admit readily or use that label. We mask it, we mask it, don't we, with self-righteousness. We mask it with with protection of rights or some other self-excusing postures. We we, we, We protect it with, we are correct in this, we're right, as though our rightness gives us license to scorn people who are created in God's image. So Peter asked Cornelius in verse 29 why he sent for him, and Cornelius recounted this entire divine encounter, and this is the verse I want to leave you with. In verse 33, Cornelius said, now we are all here and we're waiting before God for the message the Lord has given to you. Now we're all here and we're waiting before God for the message the Lord has given to you. There are people in my neighborhood and in your neighborhood who are waiting before God for the message the Lord has given to us. There are people in our workplaces. There are people in the suburbs in West County. There are people in the city of St. Louis. There are people in rural Missouri at Ironton where we're gonna go and have this VBS this summer. There are people all around our nation and all around our world who are seeking and are ready and waiting. The question is, are we going? Are we available and are we going? Let's pray. God, thanks for being ascending God. And we, we ask forgiveness for any times, and I'm sure there are many, if these people are like me, where I've been too busy or too selfish or too judgmental to, to go when you said go. And I pray that you would transform us and change us as individuals, as families, as a church, that we'll be a people who go when you say go. Even if we don't have all the, even if we don't have all the answers or the whole plan laid out before us, but we'll be like Peter and, and, and say, all right, I'm gonna go even if I don't have and I'm gonna take the gospel to people. And I might even be conscious of, boy, it's hard for me because in my flesh, I might see these people as less than. Thank you that in Christ, there's no unclean people. There's nobody who's unworthy of the gospel. So call us and use us and send us and we pray that you would get all the glory. 